And then take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 through 15. Hear now the Word, the living God. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those who are in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. This is the word of Christ, and we say, Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. And now, O Lord, we pray that the preaching of the word of Christ would take root in our hearts, that we would understand this not simply as an opportunity to learn more about the Word, or even to learn more about you, but also, in addition to these things, that you might cause us by your Spirit to receive this as Christ's very Word to our souls. We pray today, specifically in this place, for any who are here who do not know him, Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Greet the saints for me. Greet the saints for me. It's not a phrase that I often hear in the United States, but as I've mentioned to you before, it's a phrase that I often hear in other countries, having had the opportunity to travel to various places and to be with God's people all over the globe. Many of you have had that opportunity. One of the common refrains that I hear when I'm getting ready to leave those beloved saints, wherever they may be, perhaps it's in Africa or Europe or other parts of the world. A common refrain is, greet the saints and your church for me. Interestingly enough, it's Quite a large biblical tradition in the pages of the New Testament. In fact, what is often absent on our lips is all over the pages of the New Testament and our brothers and sisters all over the world. And that is the desire that one believer or one group of believers or churches greet or send greetings to other believers. We're winding down, by God's grace, our journey through this great four-chapter book of the New Testament. Spending three weeks, last week, this week, and Lord willing, next week, looking at those last few verses of the chapter. Last week, if you remember, Paul gave some instructions. But specifically, he was sending individuals to the church at Colossae. This week, we're looking at a collection of six people. Six men. And here, rather than sending them, Paul is passing along their greetings. 
Do we value this biblical tradition of greeting the saints? What do I mean by that? Well, do we value the fact that we are not the only ones in Christ's church? That there are brothers and sisters all over this region, all over this world, many of whom we have prayed for just a few moments ago. And even though we can't greet them all by name, is the spirit of our heart such that we would, if we could, greet the brothers, greet the sisters there in the church in North Korea, the church in Uganda, the the church in this section of England. It's all over the pages of the New Testament. In fact, in seven of Paul's 12 letters, the endings are like this. With names. This person, that person, sending greetings. Here, Paul passes on the greetings of six particular individuals. Three that are Jewish and three that are Gentile. They're all co-workers of Paul. And they all send their greetings. You heard me read of these brothers just a few moments ago. What I want us to do this morning is I want us to walk through briefly this passage, looking at each of these men, and then end with four simple lessons. And just like last week, we'll see that the sections of Scripture that we often skip over, like genealogies in the Old Testament, or greetings in the New Testament, are actually the word of the living God. And they are for us, and they are instructive. None of us in this place ever met Aristarchus. We never met Mark or Jesus, who was called Justice, Epaphras, Luke, Demas. Many of them are our brothers in the faith. What do their greetings teach us? Well, let's look firstly then at the first grouping of three. Aristarchus. Who was Aristarchus? We first meet Aristarchus in Acts chapter 19. Put your finger in Colossians and then turn over to the book of Acts. Many of these men appear there in various places. Acts chapter 19, verse 29. You know that Paul is on his missionary journeys and he has a traveling band of co-workers. In Acts chapter 19, he is in the midst of a riot at Ephesus. You know, the secular pagan world doesn't like the preaching and teaching of Christ. It bothers them. It unsettles them. It rocks the core of their values. And that was what was happening in Acts chapter 19. And listen to what happened, picking up in verse 28. Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Boys and girls, that was a goddess. They were worshiping a goddess. A half-human, half-divine kind of thing that they thought was the, the living God or one of the many living gods. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. In chapter 20, verse 4, we read that Aristarchus was from Thessalonica. And he likely accompanied Paul all the way to the end of Paul's journey in Rome. Turn over to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27 and verse 2. There we read this. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship... 
of Adramitium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coasts of Asia, Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. You see, Aristarchus was with Paul in good times, times of gospel fruit, times of gospel tears, and then in very difficult times, like riots and sailing to trials. Paul, in Colossians chapter 4, calls Aristarchus my fellow prisoner, likely meaning that Aristarchus was also under some kind of arrest, some kind of jailed situation, just like Paul. A Jewish co-worker. Then there's Mark. We first meet Mark, don't we, in Acts chapter 15, at least the story of Mark's conflict in Acts chapter 15, verse 39. Turn there for just a moment. Do you remember that this is Mark, the cousin of Barnabas? And in Acts chapter 15, verse 39, we read of this. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed. Well, prior to this conflict, Mark was present in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, when Peter was released from prison. Barnabas and Paul took Mark to Antioch and to their first missionary journey. In Acts chapter 13, verse 13, Mark leaves them and returns home. Here in our text, in Acts 15, verse 39, there is a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over Mark, such that they actually have to go their separate ways for a season. In our text, however, what do we read of? But a change of heart, perhaps on Mark's part, or perhaps on Paul's part, because the Word of God in Colossians 4, verse 10 says... With Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Paul didn't want Mark to go with them on a missionary journey, and now he's telling the church some 12 years later, the church at Colossae, if he comes to you, receive him, welcome him. In fact, in 2 Timothy 4.11, he says something similar, and he actually says, for Mark is useful to me. Peter mentions Mark in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. See, we're getting a picture of the traveling band of saints with Paul, Aristarchus and Mark. And then there's very little about a man by the name of Jesus who was called Justice. Boys and girls, this isn't Jesus the Savior. Jesus really is just the Greek version of the name Yeshua, Joshua. And many... Jews would likely have had this name, but it was the custom for Jews living in the Greco-Roman world to often take Greek names. So you'll see this sometimes in Scripture. And Jesus, who is called Justice, Jesus being the Hebrew name and Justice being the Greek name. Paul then says in verse 11, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision." These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. Now, 
Paul doesn't mean here the circumcision party, that group of individuals that was causing a lot of problems in the book of Galatians. Remember that, boys and girls? They were a bunch of people who were professing Jesus, but they were saying, if you're really going to be saved, if you're really going to be forgiven for your sins, if you're really going to be a person of God, you you need to also accept circumcision if you're a boy or if you're a man. Paul boldly says, there is nothing that can be added to the work of Christ in the saving of sinners. His righteous life and his death on the cross is all that there is. His resurrection assures that God has received his offering for sin, that he is validated for all to see as King of kings and Lord of lords. And there was a party that was called the circumcision party. They wanted to add works to Jesus. Here, though, Paul doesn't mean that party. He means Jewish persons. So he says, once again, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are Jewish. Now, by saying this, he could mean one of two things. He could mean these are the only Jewish believers that I have with me in my little band. Everybody else that's traveling with me, that's ministering, that's preaching the kingdom of Christ is Gentile. Or he could mean, out of all the Jews in this region, these are the only ones who have trusted in Christ. Commentators debate whether it's one or the other. For us, it doesn't really change the meaning, of course, because what he's saying is, here are three Jewish men who love Jesus. But notice what he says about these three Jewish men. They have proved to be a comfort to me. They prove to be a comfort to me. Paul could mean spiritual comfort. He could mean help in the work. He he could literally mean the physical meeting of needs. Because in just a moment we're going to meet Luke, the beloved physician, who likely would have been helpful in meeting physical and medical needs. But go back up just a few verses to Colossians 4, verse 8. Remember why Paul said he was sending Tychicus and Onesimus to the Colossians. What did he say? I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. I'm sending someone to you that you might be comforted, and I want you to know that there are three who have been a comfort to me. I can't do this alone. Of course, the Lord Christ stands with me. But he's provided fellow believers to bring comfort to me. Are you seeking to be a comfort to the saints, beloved? In what ways might God be calling you to meet the physical, tangible, emotional, and even spiritual needs of the saints? Of course, it's all by his grace and by his Holy Spirit. But Paul, the apostle, in jail, can say, Colossians You need comfort. I'm sending some to you for that purpose. And Colossians, I want you to know, these three have been great comfort to me. There's a lesson here by implication, isn't there? We learn that comforting the hearts and souls of the saints is a godly virtue. Something that we ought to aspire to. Well, that's the first of six. That's the first group of two groups of the six. But in verse 12, having said that these are the only ones who are Jewish, 
Paul now moves to three other names. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, just like Onesimus last week. Epaphras was from Colossae. We read of Epaphras several times in this letter. Remember back to chapter 1, verse 7. There Paul writes these words. He says, I've been giving thanks to God because I've heard all of these wonderful things about you. He says, I give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you, since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, as you also learned from Epaphras, our fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Many would argue that Epaphras was a pastor, church planter perhaps. And now Paul, sending a letter, along with Tychicus and Onesimus, is saying, one of your pastors greets you. Can you imagine the the lay of the land in the first century? All of these churches in Gentile territory, sometimes including Jewish individuals, but many Gentile converts to the Messiah. The suffering that they're going through in various ways, the false philosophy that they're being battered with, Paul deals with in chapter 2. And he says, listen, I've got comfort where I am, and I want you to know all of these people want me to tell you greetings. And this isn't, beloved, this isn't just, hey, tell someone I said hello. These are earnest greetings. Because what do we read of Epaphras? Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. That you may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. Interestingly enough, Paul references Epaphras In another letter that was sent to the Colossian region, the letter of Philemon. Epaphras was likely a convert, Paul. He sends his greetings to a church that he loves, a church that he's praying for, a church that he's zealous for. Look at this phrase. The New King James Version translates it, greets you always laboring fervently for you in prayers. It literally could be translated, he is in great agony for you in prayers. Doesn't necessarily correspond best to our English language, so laboring is a good translation. It's not that he's in agony, but there's a sense that he's laboring so fervently in prayer. Paul uses the same word in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, for his own labor for the saints that they might grow in maturity. There's a laboring of prayer that Epaphras, the pastor, the minister, the church planter, has for the saints. And notice the content of his prayer. Look, look at Epaphras' weekly prayer list for the saints of Colossae. He's praying. Quote, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Of course, that prayer undoubtedly was fervent because of the various philosophy that was battering the Colossians. The false philosophies that we studied in chapter 2. 
What does it mean that he prays that they would stand perfect and complete in all the will of God? Well, it would be that they would grow in maturity and resolve in the teachings of God. That Christ and his ways and his word would be known among them and not just known, but practiced and revered and held to. Paul says, secondly, he has great zeal for you. Verse 13, for I bear witness that he has a great zeal for you. But not only for the Colossians, Paul says, for those who are in Laodicea and those who are in Hierapolis. See, those three cities were triangle cities in a particular valley in a part of the region. So Epaphras is interested in the church of Jesus Christ in his region. For his own church, yes, but but for the church of Christ in this region, he is zealous. Then we meet Luke. Of course, Luke would go on ultimately to write the book of Luke, the book of Acts. Oftentimes, when we read in the book of Acts the stories of Paul, and it's written in the way that we would pronounce it, we did this or we did that, most would argue that that's Luke. Saying, this is what our traveling band did. Paul simply says of Luke, verse 14, Luke the beloved physician, and Demas greets you. Well, Luke participates with Paul in his ministry in Macedonia, Acts chapter 16. He ministers with Paul in Palestine after the third missionary journey, Acts chapter 20 and following. He's along with Paul during that famous shipwreck on the voyage to Rome, Acts chapters 27 and 28. He would later be instrumental in teaching the account of of Jesus and the account of Jesus' apostles in the planting of churches from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. Paul also says some very interesting words in the last letter that he would pen that we have as Holy Scripture. 2 Timothy 4, 11, Paul says this, Only Luke is with me. Now, this would be later on after Colossians. It would be two various periods of time where Paul would come under trial and house arrest. He says in 2 Timothy that no one stood with him at his first defense. And now he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, that final letter, only Luke is with me. The final man that sends greetings is a man by the name of Demas. And there is a verse in Colossians, chapter 4, verse 14, that is rich with meaning and rich with a lesson. And that is this verse. Because in one particular sentence, you have the tale of two men. Verse 14 says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. They are both with Paul. They are both a part of the traveling band. They both send greetings and concern and prayers for the church at Colossae. But within just a little bit of time, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we read these words. In verse 11, Paul says to Timothy, come quickly, only Luke is with me. But one verse prior 
Paul tells Timothy these words. Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Now, the statement there, having loved this present world, isn't Paul just saying, you know, he decided that he was a Methodist and I'm a Baptist. He decided that he would be better served in this part of the ministry. He's, he's going to go over to this particular church. We, we can't agree about the color of carpet, so he's going to go over here and I'm going to go over there. That's what we do in the West, don't we? But by Paul saying in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, that he's forsaken me, having loved this present world. I think a majority of interpreters would understand that to mean he has abandoned the faith. Imagine that. Now many scholars and preachers would say, yes, but the Colossians doesn't say that. The, the, the text of Colossians doesn't say that. Let's just linger in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. Everything's rosy at this point. Demas is doing the right thing. Luke is doing the right thing. Of course, because we understand that Scripture is a united whole and our hermeneutic for Scripture, our understanding of how to put the Bible together is Scripture interprets Scripture. That as we see that we look at names in the Bible and accounts like this, there are other places where those names are mentioned. And at the writing of Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Demas and Luke both would say, I love Jesus and I want to serve. But that would change. Well, these six men send their greetings. So what do we learn? What lessons are there? Paul closes this section by saying, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea. And, and then he sends a particular greeting, doesn't he? And Nymphus and the church that is in his house. Some translations may render this and greet Nympha, which would have been a feminine name. Nymphus being a masculine name and the church that is in her house. Very minor variant in the original language. But notice what Paul is saying. Greet the saints in that city next door to you. And also there's a particular church that's meeting in a house. And I want you to greet them. Okay. So we ought to be concerned about Jesus' church. And when we're able, we ought to, to greet one another. Pass on the greetings. This occasionally happens We'll have a theology conference. One of the speakers will come. They'll be among us for several days. They'll get to know some of us. They'll leave, and then I might happen to bump into them later at a conference or something. And they may say something like this. Send greetings to your church. It's a very tangible lesson, but what does that help us to understand? Is there an ethos? And the greeting of the saints. Well, four simple lessons and quickly let's look at them. The first is this. Fellow believers are a gift along the way. It's just a broad implication of this text. Fellow believers are a gift along the way. Remember verse 14, Paul says, these men have been a comfort to me. God gave me comfort through other believers. Has God done that for you? If you were sending greetings to our church, 
Might you be able to say, this person and that person is with me. They send greetings. And I want you to know that I've been here in jail, Grace Baptist Chapel. But brother, so-and-so has been a comfort to me. Wouldn't we long to hear that? This person, this elder, this deacon, this saint, they're in persecutory territory because of the faith. But our other brother, he's with him. We're glad to know that comfort is coming. Wouldn't that just be a blessing to our souls? You see, fellow believers are a gift along the way. Oftentimes, at least in recent times, it's sometimes difficult to see what a blessing believers are to us. Because we do often, by and large, live in a comfortably religious, freedom-oriented kind of nation. And so it might be easier to take believers for granted, but imagine if things were to change. And and we were the saints in North Korea as our brother just prayed for earlier. Wouldn't we need desperately the gifts of other believers? They are a comfort to me. Fellow believers are indeed a gift, and we ought to thank God, the living God, for choosing to give us fellow believers. But secondly, I think we learn something from Epaphras. And that is this. Prayer and concern for Christ's church is a godly pattern. Prayer and concern for Christ's church is a godly pattern. There are no commands here. This comes by way of implication. We read the story of Epaphras. Two or three verses Paul says, he takes time to say in verse 13, I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and for other churches. And by the Spirit, some 2,000 years later, we are to receive this lesson as a good and godly pattern. Prayer for the church. Prayer and concern for the church. Christ's church is a godly pattern. Something we ought to grow in. On our prayer list our prayer journal, our family worship tables. One of the, I've mentioned this before, but I just love, <laughs> I just love when our brother prays for people like the dictator of North Korea. I just love that. But, but what is our prayer? When we join with him in that, what is our prayer? Lord, if you would, save him. But, but even if you don't save him, and our brother said it this morning, We didn't plan this, by the way. In your common grace, would you free the people of that land? But we also prayed what? Would you give the Christians in North Korea a resolve? That ought to be a regular thing on our lips. Not not just here in our gathered settings, but in our homes. We ought to be thinking the church of Christ is vast. It is broad. Pull us sometimes out of our insular concerns and say, look, Prayer and concern for believers all across the globe, particularly the ones that we're privileged to know personally. It's a godly pattern and virtue. Epaphras, we read of several times in this text. Are we interested in Christ's body beyond this local church? You see, greetings like this in the Word of God help us to see this as a virtue. You're looking for tangible ways to do this. Just consider 
the churches of other men that come and preach here from time to time. Maybe they're Baptists, maybe they're not. You know, we Reformed people often travel in packs with Presbyterians. Pray for them. When you see the names out there, or when calendars are available on the table, look, the the Heart Crime Missionary Society calendar is chock full of names. You'll never meet most, if any, of these people. Let's be praying for the saints. What are the concerns there? We mentioned this last week, but each month we get a report from a church that we're helping to, to, to financially support in Scotland. And there we actually have the ability to say, I listened to that man speak to our congregation through the Internet during COVID. That church went from 15 to, I don't know, 60, 70. And we get these reports and we can pray for the saints. God ever allows me to go to Aberdeen, Scotland, and see our brother and his church, I hope to be able to say greetings to you from the saints in Hampton, Virginia. But there's a third lesson, I think, in the greetings of this text, and that is this. Restoration among believers is a blessing. Now, we're not given all the details, are we, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, but I'm speaking of Mark. Paul simply says, You've received instructions... Now, when we add that statement to his command, welcome him, don't reject him, welcome him. When we add that to the other scriptures that we have that mention Mark, what are we to see? There's been some kind of restoration here. Oh, for the day when saints would pursue reconciliation. It doesn't always happen, but a lot of times it does. And it's a blessing, a God-given blessing. Paul can say, beyond even these words in 2 Timothy 4, Mark is now useful to me. The one that I I was going to leave my best friend in the ministry because we disagreed over this guy. Now, I'm going to say of this guy, useful. And again, was it Mark's maturing? Was it Paul's maturing? Was it both? Restoration among believers is a blessing. Such that the church... Colossae can think the apostle is writing a letter to us. And he's with some Jewish brothers and some Gentile brothers. And there's a group of them that have been so comforting to Paul. And one of them is someone that Paul had some strong division with. Now that's changed. What a blessing. But there's a fourth lesson. And that is this. Encouragement and disappointment line the path of believers. Encouragement and disappointment line or will line the path of believers. What do I mean by that, boys and girls? What I mean by that is this. In our Christian walk, even in the life of Paul, there are going to be good times and joyous times with people. And there are going to be difficult times and sad times with people. And sometimes people will disappoint us. In the faith. In verse 14, in one sentence, as we mentioned, we have the tale of these two men. And again, we don't want to read Colossians 4 14 in a vacuum without the aid of 2 Timothy chapter 4. You put these together, and what do you see? Two men sending zealous greetings to the church. And down the road, Paul can say to Timothy, 
Only Luke is here with me. I need you to come. Because Demas, in love with the world, has left me. There's a warning for us in this too, brothers and sisters. Months back, when I was taking pen to paper through this book, before we even started, I remember writing down next to verse 14 of Colossians 4, Demas is a lesson to us all. Demas is a lesson to us all. It is indeed very possible to be a part of a church, to be serving, to be serving right alongside an apostle. And then eventually to make shipwreck of faith. Now, humanly speaking, this is indeed possible. From God's vantage point, all who the Father has given to the Son to purchase, the Spirit preserves to the end. And that's a blessed hope. But we walk through the pages of Scripture and over and over and over, what are the warnings? Don't abandon the faith. Don't abandon the faith. Don't walk away from Christ. Don't leave your first love. It's everywhere. What are we to make of this? I mean, we are the people who boldly say that if Christ saves you, He will never let you go. We put these two things together and we say, this is true believers. But here are our Father's loving warning passages to us, which He uses to make this a reality. God will not ever let go of His saints. And one of the ways that He preserves them is by warning them unto the very end. Demas in love with this present world. It's, of course, possible that Paul doesn't fully mean to call into question Demas' ultimate salvation, but that he just loved the world better than serving Jesus, and so he decided to give up on the ministry and <coughs> go work at this company. But the way that Paul renders it in 2 Timothy 4 is fairly clear. I've been abandoned by all these people for various reasons. Some of them I've been free to release to you in 2 Timothy 4. But Demas, I've been abandoned by him because he loves the world. And all through the pages of Scripture, what is the warning? That saints are those who do what? They overcome the world. What does Paul tell believers elsewhere? Do not... Be in love with this world. Do not let this world press you into its mold. And here in Colossians 4, 14 is a lesson to every saint. Take heed. Lest you think that when you stand in yourself, you ultimately fall. See, today it is a little bit more subtle, isn't it? Wouldn't be as drastically noticeable, would it? I mean, I mean, there are examples of this. Big figures in evangelicalism, so-called, that deconstruct or apostatize. 
But the Demas kind of thing that typically happens is the Demas kind of thing that we don't hear about, and that is that people slowly pull away from healthy churches. They may even join another church, kind of get lost in the mix. Over the course of weeks and months, which turn into years, they end up demonstrating that they're not walking with Christ. What a lesson for us in one simple verse of two people who say hello. If your question is today, when you hear this morning, well, I don't, I don't want to abandon the faith. How do I know if I'm really in Christ? You're in the best possible position ever. Because you actually are demonstrating by that question a desire not to leave your loving Savior. Who says, by the way, if you come to him, he will not cast you out. So each and every day, we avoid abandoning the faith by looking to Christ. We look at the things of the world and when we fall into them, we repent. We look to Christ again. And then the next day, we fall oftentimes into sometimes the same things. And we repent and we fall onto Christ. And this becomes a pattern until one day we cease to breathe. And we're with Him face to face. And the fighting and the wrestling and the persevering in the faith on our side of things, if you will, is over. And we look and we say, the Lord Christ preserved me the whole time. But one of the things that he did was he gave me verses like Colossians 4.14. And I saw that there was a man once who seemed to be zealous about his church and he walked away. And that was a warning for me in May of 2022 when I was considering doing the very same thing. And that warning was something that my loving Savior gave to me. Because he is a Savior who doesn't take bruised reeds. Boys and girls, think about those reeds in marshlands. Sometimes they're, they're the kinds of things that you would make pencils or quills out of. Sometimes many of them would get snapped off almost completely. And many would come through and they would say, well, these aren't worth anything. Let's cut them down. But our shepherd, our shepherd doesn't do that to bruised reeds. No, he nurtures and preserves to the very end. There are lessons in the greetings to the saints. And we ought to meditate on them and heed them. They are loving lessons. Imagine our Lord and Savior's voice coming to us even through the hellos of saints 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. Almighty God, we pray that you would nurture the souls of your saints. Protect us, guide us, help us to learn even these lessons that we see in these six verses. We thank you for them. We pray these things in Jesus' name.